right, well, while the kids are headed out, I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to open up to Acts. Heavenly Father, God, again, I thank you for this day, and I just thank you, Lord, for all the good that you've done for us. I just ask now again, before we look in the book of Acts and we look into your word, Lord, I ask that you would just guide my own words. And Lord, we don't want just opinion or thoughts today, Lord, but we want your truth from your word. And I just pray that you'd bring that about today. In your name I pray, amen. Well, I think it's uh, interesting we got some missionaries with us today because we've been studying Acts and we've been talking about the, the very founding of all missions, okay? And so we've already gone through one missionary journey. We're now into uh, the book of uh, Acts chapter 16, where we're heading, heading into the second missionary journey. And uh, last week, we were on what I called the road to Philippi, okay? So uh, Paul encountered several detours. He got some new companions. He went a whole bunch of different ways, not at all the way he planned, but God clearly was working it out and bringing him to a place. And so I'm going to share with you the very last verse we had last week uh, is right here, verse 10, Acts 16.10. And it says, when Paul had seen the vision, so God brings him a vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So now he's going to head off into Greece, okay? And so now we've talked about this section that's coming up before. Uh, you may not remember this, but uh, uh, March or April of last year, we were studying the book of Philippians. And so we went back to Acts chapter 16 to see who, what people were in the Philippian church. And we talked about this. We covered this story. We were looking at those first converts so that we had an idea of what the audience would be. But in this passage today, I'd like to think a little bit differently, and so I'm going to ask you to think with me, okay? Um, I'm putting on my teacher mode, right? I got school coming up around the corner, so I'm starting to think, questioning, answering. Okay, guys, let's, let's pay attention now, okay? So I'm, I'm kind of thinking that way. I'm going to put up some questions because we need to ask why, uh, by the way, who wrote uh, the book of Acts? Who wrote it? Anybody remember? Luke. Okay, so the question I want to ask is, why did Luke include this particular part of the story when he got to Philippi? Luke doesn't always get into the details or the specifics. Sometimes he just says there were several converts. He doesn't say names. He doesn't say people. But in this place, he's going to mention specific names and specific people. Sometimes he uh, does that. Sometimes he'll mention people who've joined the party, like last week we talked about Timothy. But he doesn't always do that, so I have to ask the question, why? I think there's a very clear answer why he does this, and I think the answer is to show the reality of gospel work. And so as I read through this story, I'm going to take some pauses, and I'm going to ask three questions, okay? So as we are encountering people that are encountering the gospel through Paul, I'm going to ask three questions. I'm going to say, who? Who's, who's getting saved? Okay, so as I'm going through, start thinking about that, who? I want you to think how, like what brought them, what was the process to that, just the details, okay? So I'm not looking for a deep theological answer, so please don't be afraid to throw out an answer, okay? Just listen to the story. And I'm going to ask the question, what? What were they saved from, okay? So when we talk about being saved, the Bible uses that word a lot of different ways. It ultimately means saved from hell, but it also means saved from this sinful life and from who we are, our sin natures. And so I want you to listen to those questions, okay? So let's jump into verse 11, and I'll start to hint as we get closer where you need to start thinking, okay? So you're thinking, who, how, and what from? Okay, that's the three questions. So let's go to verse 11. 
So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained at this city in this city some days. So I, you guys always enjoy a nice little map. So let's think about what's happened. Paul's left Antioch. He's gone up through. He went through all these detours, ended up at Troas. Okay, and notice it said he went through Samothrace right here, this island. And that was a typical uh, stopping point. It usually took, if, you had, if they had the wind at their backs, pushing them forward, that was a typical stopping place when they took the sea voyage. So Troas was the, the main port. If you were going to go from there over to here, notice Neapolis is actually the port city for Philippi. Okay, so that's where they hit next. So they, they went, they stopped at the island halfway. The next day, they made it the rest of that journey to Neapolis. Philippi is about 10 more miles inland. Okay, and so uh, as they make their way in, I have another picture for you here. This is uh, uh, from what's left of Philippi. Okay, this is called the Via Ingratia, which is the Roman road headed right through here. And so this is all that's left of Philippi. So when we're talking about this city, this is what's left of it today. It just looks like a bulldozer went over the whole thing, right? Uh, a couple thousand years old, uh, not much left. But we know where this city is, which is really neat. Because when you're studying it and you go, oh, this is actually where that city was at, there's little things you can find, okay? So I, I, I like to put this up here and think, okay, so can you picture Paul, the Silas, and the rest of his company headed into Philippi for the first time, headed down this road right here? I think that's pretty interesting to think that way. So now we have verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where uh, we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come there. Okay, so I'm going to show you a couple more pictures here. So this is actually uh, from Google, uh, Google Maps, right? You know how you can turn on the satellite view, okay? I thought this was kind of interesting, so... Pardon my geekiness here, but I was uh, super interested in the map for some reason this week. And th this is actually from Google Maps. Uh, see, I was just on my computer. I took a screenshot. This is Philippi. This is where it's at. Notice there's an amphitheater right here, okay? And this is where, this is actually a modern road, but right next to it is that Via Ingratia, that old Roman road, runs right along with it. So there's, there's Philippi right there, okay? And so I'll show you some more things from that. Uh, let me, this is zoomed out a little bit. So here you have Philippi, right? And it, it's fun because it actually says Philippi. It says Philippi Archaeological Site. Uh, if you, so if you want to get home and Google map it, that's, that's what you'll find. Uh, if you notice right up this road, now you can't see it very well because of our lighting in here, but right here is a small little river going through here, okay? And uh, you probably can't read that, but that says Lydia Baptistry in Philippi. So this is, mo this is where people traditionally look at and they think, Okay, this is the place, so they, they went out of Philippi and down by the river, so we don't know if it was exactly here or not, but this is the traditional spot where they, they believe this happened. This is where uh, Paul went down to the river to this prayer meeting, okay? And I, I thought when I was looking at the map, I thought, man, I want to go there now. That would be cool to see that river and possibly where this happened. But there they are, so they head down to the river. There wasn't a synagogue. There must not have been a synagogue in this city, and so that's what Paul's normal routine was to go to the Jewish synagogue. There wasn't one, but he heard through a rumor that there was a place that people would go to pray to God down by the river. So he heads down there um, to the river prayer meeting. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. A very similar phrasing to Cornelius that we talked about earlier. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. 
And so now here we have this first truly European convert, okay? It's this first person from Europe that's hearing the gospel, paying attention to what's being said. After she was, and, uh, and after she was baptized and her, and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So here she, after she hears the, the message. So let's start thinking about these questions, okay? Who, how, and what? And I'm really going to ask you these and see, if, see what kind of answers, okay? So I'm not looking for the perfect answer here. Okay, think about what you just heard in this story. Um, who did Luke specifically mention got saved? And please just say it out. This is an easy one. Lydia, right? Good job, guys. If I had candy, I'd give it to you right now. Lydia, right? Um, we also see that from this, her household, right? Did you notice that? It was, it was talking about in the rest of her household. So Paul must have gone back with them to her house, and we know that she prevailed upon them to do so, but maybe some of her household was down there with her at the river and hearing the message. Not only did Lydia, Lydia believe, but many in her household as well. Uh, let me ask you this. What, what do we know about Lydia? Did you hear anything in the little story about Lydia? What was that? She sold purple, right? She was a seller of purple. It might seem strange to us, but a seller of purple would have been a, a very wealthy person, okay? Now, she was actually from Thyatira, which is uh, over in where modern-day Turkey is, I believe. So she was probably, since she was there being European, she's probably of uh, Asian descent, but she was over here living in Philippi at this time. Seller of purple would have meant that she was also probably very wealthy, we can see clues to that because what happened after this? She brings them back to her house. She must have a, a decent size. Her household would have been not just uh, family members, but probably servants, people working for her, probably for her seller of purple business. Okay, Lydia's purple, buy it here. Okay, and so uh, she, had a, she had something going on, but she heard the gospel message. So let me ask you this. How, how did it happen? Did, anybody, did you catch anything in there about, I, I can go back to the scriptures if you need, if you want to look in your, your Bibles, notice, was there anything in here that maybe stuck out to you in the process? What's that? Yeah, okay, so yeah. So here they are, they're, they're at a prayer meeting. Now, this is important. What they were doing, they were at a prayer meeting. Now, this, they would have been God-fearing, in other words, people who weren't true Jewish proselytes, but were acknowledging the God of the Bible. And so they were down there, but they don't know the gospel yet. Very much like Cornelius being a a God-fearing man. So she's down there, she's worshiping already, praying to God, and that's when Paul shows up. Do you see anything else in here? Yes, the Lord opened her heart, right? And notice right after that, to do what? To pay attention. And that's interesting. I'm going to remember that when I start teaching this year. Lord, open their hearts to pay attention, please. But that's interesting. What, what, what brought her? What was the process? God was working in her heart. The Lord opened up her heart. I love this because I know that many of you know exactly what this was like. You were on your own path, on your own way, and when you finally came to believe the gospel message, almost everybody I've ever met that's a Christian says the same thing. God did it. God opened my heart. Such an encouraging thing. So here you have this woman down, this prayer meeting. God opens her heart. Now, this is a little bit tougher when I think about what she was saved from. Because on one, in, in, on, on one sense, in one hand, you've got this lady who is wealthy, well off, seems to have her life together, not somebody struggling. I think 
uh, Jesus gives us a clue. When Jesus was on this earth, one of the things that he said was he said, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven. You know what I think that is? Because when everything is going smooth, now let's be honest, when everything is going smooth, where does the, the importance of God go in, in our heads sometimes? Doesn't he start to slip back to the back? And what do you need God for? Everything's going fine. And many times it's, it's through the hardships of life that opens up our minds. We go, man, I need God. I've seen that happen over and over again. I think God rescued her. God saved her from her, her comfort. Everything was going smooth. She was a God-fearing person, but she still needed the gospel message. And when she heard it, God opened her heart and she believed. Let's continue on here. So here we have this first person. Next, he says this. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Now, let me just throw something extra in here. That word divination, the Greek word there is the word python. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Um, what was going on here? This, this girl, there was, a, there was a temple to pythos, and so it was guarded by these serpents. And so this literally says in the Greek, it says a spirit of a snake. That's, that's literally what, what it says there. That's super interesting. If you know anything about the Bible, that's super interesting. You start thinking about all kinds of other connections. But here you have this girl, and the, what the point is here that she, by some spiritual power, right, is, is telling fortunes. It goes on. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. On one hand, is that absolutely true? I didn't get a response there. I was expecting it. Yes, Matt, that's true. Let me try that again. Let's read what she said. I don't think you were listening. So this girl, by a spirit of divination, spirit of python, literally, which is weird, cries out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Is that true? Yes. yes. Thank you, children. Yes. It's interesting, so often Satan's methods try to go arm in arm with what God is doing. But Paul is not going to have any of this. In fact, it says, and this she kept doing for many days. Paul, he's human, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. I wondered when I read this, I thought, I wonder why he didn't do something the first day. This went on for many days before he finally said, this, this enough is enough. We don't know. But finally he does, and by the power of Jesus, the Spirit is cast out of her. So now let's, let's ask our questions. Who? Slave girl. I love how in church, when the pastor asks questions, a lot of you, when you answer, and you're all doing it, it's so funny. And when you answer, you don't go, slave, it was a slave girl. Slave girl. No, you, you all go, because you think you're going to be wrong or something, I guess. I don't know. Yes, it was a slave girl. Well, tell me something about her. You can be louder this time. Even if you interrupt each other, we'll, we'll take turns. Tell me something about her. If you need to raise your hand because you're afraid to speak without being called on, that's fine too. Something, did, did you, what about the slave girl? Obvious things. She was possessed. 
What else? <laughs> she was annoying. <laughs> that is true. She was annoying. And Paul was fine. Like, I'm just getting annoyed by this. That's good. I, had, I didn't have that in my notes. That's, very, that's good. Good observation. Anybody else? It looks like you were getting ready to raise your hand. You're thinking about it. No? Absolutely. She's being used. Now, the fact that she's a slave girl, would this put her on the opposite end of the spectrum from Lydia? So, so now, as we start to answer the question, why is Luke sharing these stories? I think we're starting to get an idea here. There's a broad spectrum. So on one end, we've got Lydia, seller of purple, well-established in the community, probably of a prominent importance in the community. And then we have on the other end somebody that's in a place of distress, possessed by some spirit and being used. That's exactly what we're going to find out in a minute. She's being used by these men to tell these fortunes to make money, but not for her, for them. She was most likely Greek, poor, slave girl. How? This is an easy one. Don't be shy. What happened? She's yelling out, right? Paul jumps in and what's he say? I command in the name of Jesus. Right? This one is a little bit more dramatic. Lydia hears, pays attention, moves in her heart. This one is by a command of Christ himself. Out. You're freed from this. From what? This one's easy as well. Demonic oppression. This distress. I mean, just think about this girl's life. What it would have been like for her. What can we learn? There's already some things we can learn by this when we think about what she is saved from. I started thinking, I thought, you know what? God can save us from, honestly, from any of our oppressions. Can he not? Alcoholism, drug addiction, porn addiction, any form of spiritual oppression. I've met people that have a hundred false ideas running through their heads. The Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers. It's, this is a very real thing. I think maybe not doesn't look the same way all the time as we see it in scriptures, but I think this is still very real. There are spiritual forces that are seeking to oppress you. But Christ, with a command, can say, you're gone. Notice, though, that some aspects, in fact, I would say most aspects of the slave girl's life would not change. She was not freed from her slavery. Did you notice that? And we're going to see that as the story progresses. She still would have been a slave. In fact, some aspects of her life, I think, because of this freedom from the spiritual pressure, some aspects of her life may have gotten worse. I mean, she was a prized possession. Now what good is she to her owners? Not all oppressions go so easily as this one. But then again, I think, who is it to say that it's easy? Who, who am I to say that it was easy for her after this? Do you think there were pressures for her to get back into that way of life? What do you think? Absolutely. There would have been pressures on her to get back. I mean, she was probably sitting pretty as far as slaves went. But do you think there would have been pressures for her to get back into that, even though she'd been freed? Absolutely. The truth sets her free, but the Spirit of God, I believe, keeps her free. Jesus tells a parable in the New Testament of a, an evil spirit 
who left a person. He leaves this man. He goes wandering around. When he comes back, he finds this person all cleaned up. When he sees them all cleaned up, what does he do? He goes find some buddies of his and makes it ten times worse than what it was to begin with. We see that so often with people who are struggling to break free from the things that are oppressing them, but God is the one that can set you free and keep you free. Let's keep going because the church is being built. We've got some different ends of the spectrum. The church is being built, but I don't think God's work is done yet. There are still other corners of this city that God is going to bring Paul into. So let's see what happens next year. Verse 19, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So here they are. I mean, they were making money off this girl. Suddenly she can't do the things she was doing before. So they're, they're, they're mad. I mean, they're, they're, their way of making money was gone. So what do they do? They go grab Paul and Silas, drag them to the, and it says the marketplace. So you think I have a picture for that? I think I do. Yeah. Here you go. This is the marketplace in Philippi. So notice the little stalls here. This is where the different little market shops would have been. Okay. And right behind it is the Roman Forum. So this is exactly right. So they would have been dragged down this street past the marketplace, probably into this Roman Forum. This, that's right where it would have happened. So they're drug in before the rulers of this city. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, so this is the accusation, they said, these men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, Philippi was a very Roman city. In fact, Philippi was primarily composed of, its residents were former soldiers from the Roman army who were retired from the, the army and were now living in the city. So they're very pro-Roman here. And so they're going, hey, man, they're messing up with our Roman ways of doing things. That's what these guys are doing. And so they drag them before the leaders and, and pronounce these false accusations. The mob mentality takes over. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, a couple things about this. Uh, first of all, don't miss what happened to them before they were put in prison. We like to focus on the prison part. What happened to these two guys before they were thrown in prison? Beaten. Don't skim over this. What happened right before they were beaten? Yeah. You think of the humiliation. In a public arena, stripped of your clothing and then beaten. That's what Paul and Silas endured in this story. I have here, um, in those, where Philippi's at, where we can see there's, there's one building that was the, clearly the prison, which I think is really cool because that means this had to have been the prison. All that's left of the building is the small inner part of the prison, where did it say Paul and Silas were thrown? Into the inner part of the prison, right? You see here, uh, this, this is a picture, and actually, this is you know, from Google Maps. You can actually get the street view stuff, and you can actually see this, but it actually says Prison of St. Paul right there. And do we know that 100%? No. But even if it wasn't the one, this is what it would have been like. So imagine down in what we think more like a dungeon, 
Also, I know it said that his feet were put into stocks, but most Roman stocks that they found, like from this time period, uh, were both hands and feet, okay? Um, so even though it just says feet, that may just have been a way of saying he was put into the stocks. Most Roman soldiers, once they put you in the stocks with the feet, they put your hands up as well. Now picture for a moment. Think about for a moment. What happened before they were thrown in here? Beaten with rods. How would this have felt? Comfortable? No. I, the word excruciating comes to my mind. And I think, man, I, I, I try to pick, I mean, just it, it hurt your back. But multiple times, I'm guessing probably lacerations on their back from beating, being beaten. With, I mean, they were stripped before they were beaten and then stretched out in the bottom of this <laughs> deep down inside here. I, I just imagine the, the filth. Do you think they cleaned up after the other prisoners before they threw another one down there? How do you think Paul's going to... Now, see, you, you, you that know the scriptures, you know what's going to happen next. But if you enter into the story and you think about what the situation was genuinely like, you think, man, what, what would I do? And you think about what Paul did. I'm going to tell you right now, if you're truly a Christian and if you were put in this situation, I, not because of you, but because of the power of the Spirit of God, I think that you may have found yourself doing the same thing Paul did. See, Paul wasn't doing this because Paul was so great. Paul was doing what he does next because God is so great. Listen to where God takes him in the middle of this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Can you imagine? Imagine that jailer standing outside of the cell. I would have had a very confused look on my face. He could have taken part in the beatings before they were thrown in. He clearly took part in the locking them in and putting them in the stocks. And to hear coming out of that deep, dark pit of prison, two guys praising God. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So he's dozed off. This earthquake happened. He wakes up. He sees the doors open. He draws his sword. As an honorable soldier should, his prisoners have escaped. And he's ready to kill himself because he knows that's what is going to happen anyway. And it's the honorable thing to do that himself. Paul cries with a loud voice. From, now the doors are open. From the prison cell, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Don't hurt yourself, we're still here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear fell down before Paul and Silas then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, as simple as it can be, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your whole... Oh, did not go? Sorry. You and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds 
I think this soldier was probably the one who inflicted the wounds, at least some of them, or oversaw the process. What's he doing now? He takes them to his house, washes their wounds, and then he is baptized by Paul. He was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So let's ask our questions. Who? The jailer. Thank you. Um, right? Was that the only person? Did you catch anybody else in there that was believing? Yeah, the whole household, his family, right? Everybody else that, so Peter and, or I'm sorry, uh, Paul and Silas that make their way back to the house. They're brought back by him. They're cleaning their wounds. And, and I, I, I picture as this man is wiping these wounds down, Paul is probably already because he can't wait. He's telling them about Jesus. I think I can imagine Paul using scriptures from the Old Testament like from Isaiah, by his wounds you have been healed. These wounds? No. His wounds? Yes. Whatever it is that he shares and however he does it, they hear the story of Jesus and they believe and they get baptized that very night. But when it's day, the magistrates... Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't finish answering the questions. Who? Flipping jailer. How? But what was something that happened that led to this? Well, this one was a little bit more dramatic, wasn't it? Yes, divine intervention. Boom. Earthquake. Doors opened. Whoa. This is what woke this jailer up out of this retired soldier existence that he was hanging out in the jail, just working out the rest of his days as a guard. This woke him up. And got him thinking. From what? I want to suggest this. Apathy. An apathetic life. Working out his days. Doing his job. Punching the clock. When things go wrong, he says, well, I might as well just kill myself. But God intervenes. Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. You can go now. And they're already going. Therefore, come out now and go in peace, which means come out now and go in peace. I can't help but think. So after the experience at the house and the worshiping and praising God, they go, well, let's go back to jail. I think they must have because what happens now? The police have come, said, hey, they can go now. The jailer says, you can go now. Go in peace. But Paul said to them, and this is kind of important. I don't think that Paul is trying to be difficult here, okay? So this may seem that way. Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. This was a very Roman city, was it not? Very Roman city. Some places even called this Philippi. They call it Little Rome. Okay, they were very much in line with Romans. Rome's policies. Paul was an official Roman citizen, as must have been Silas. We're Roman citizens. You beat us, you condemned us without a, a trial, is basically what they're saying. And he says, they've thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Once again, I don't think Paul's being snarky here. I don't think he's trying to you know, just be difficult about the whole thing. Oh, you did us privately. 
I think what Paul wants these people in Rome to know is that we as Christians, we are not truly a threat to Rome. That's not what this is. That's not what's going on here. It needs to be seen that we weren't truly criminals. People may have seen the condemnation. They may have seen the beating. They needed to be seen that we were being released for the sake of the gospel and for the freedom that we might be able to have to continue sharing the gospel. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they, they do take them out and they go, but please just go. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed down the rest of the way. Now, before I go further, there's one other convert that we need to say who and how and what you may have missed along the way. I want to see if anybody can pick up on it. So I'm going to go back to verses 8 and 9, and actually verse 10 as well. Now, see if you can pick up on a, a change here in the way this is listed. So this is going back when Paul was encountering all these detours in modern-day Turkey, right, in Asia. It says this, so by, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, right, that's where they're going to... They, so they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we saw it uh, to go into Macedonia and conclude that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You might see the little shift there that happened right here. He, he knows. Oh, you can't answer yet. Let's see if anybody else can catch it. There's a vision, but there's something else. Notice there's a shift. I'll give you a hint. Notice the pronouns. Look at the beginning. And passing by Mysia, they went down. But what happens near the end? Here, I'll highlight for you. Now, that's interesting. Who wrote Acts? Luke. This is the first switch in Acts from they to we. Luke, with no fanfare, at least as far as we know. Luke, the physician. By the way, there was a school of medicine in Philippi at this time period. Quite possibly, Luke may have been a person that traveled. There's some ancient records that show that physicians would many times be itinerant. In other words, they would travel between cities. It's quite possible that uh, Troas to the island back up to Philippi was Luke's little traveling path that he would normally go. You're going to see at the very end of this that it switches back from we to they again. It's not till the next missionary journey that it's always we and us that Luke is constantly with them. But here we see Luke has slipped in to be part of this party. So who could we say? Luke. I don't think I have the question there. Yeah. Who? Luke. How? No idea. He doesn't record it. Just silently in the night, all of a sudden, next thing you know, he's there along with us. Luke joins the group. I, I like this because this reminds me of so many of your salvation stories. Many of us, we have these dramatic ones. Many of us, we have these, you know, moments, boom. And in some sense, we all have a moment where we go from lost to saved. But in other senses, many of us, we go, we, we look back and we go, I think I was saved here, but especially for those of us who grew up. But there definitely comes a point where 
here you have Luke who's part of this and he has believed. And now he looks at Paul and he thinks, we, us. What was he saved from? No clue. What was he saved to? It's going to be to the ministry. Luke ends up contributing more to the New Testament than any other writer as far as the, the, the volume amount. Paul has more individual letters, but the actual chunk, Luke and Acts, takes up a bigger chunk of the Bible than any other author. Lydia's home becomes a bit of a base camp to this new church. I have here a picture. This is obviously not Lydia's home. But uh, this, is, this is built down by the river. It's called Lydia's Baptistry. It's a church that's standing there now, close to the river, where people think this might have been where Lydia came to know Christ. Now, I got done. I'm going to leave this picture up for a minute. I got done. And honestly, I read this story, and I thought, this is just, this is just a great story, isn't it? I know the first time we talked about it, I felt like, ah, this is a great story. This, to me, I just love this story. There's so many aspects of this that I sit here and I go, this is just a wonderful story. It's so encouraging because you see such a diverse group of people in this first church. And you know that you've been here. You know that I've often likened that church in Philippi to Edgewood, right? We've got a hodgepodge group of people here. Look around if you don't believe me. Bunch of oddballs here. That's okay. It's the best kind of oddballs to be. I think that's often how God grows his church. It wasn't the people that maybe Paul would have expected, but it's exactly the people that God had planned. I got done with this and I thought, how can I summarize this? Sometimes I get through and I, I, I think to myself, if I wanted to summarize this in just a few short statements, how could I do that? I don't always share these little statements, but they, the, the, they're the statements I use as I'm, I'm sitting back and thinking, God, what's, what's the point of this passage? I want to share the statements with you that I, that I worked through and came up with because I, I think it displays why did Luke make sure he included, not just because he was part of the group at this time, but what was he trying to get across by sharing these strange, varied stories? Like I said before, I think it's to show that the reality of the gospel work and how it works. Here's the statements. I put them all up there at once for those of you that like to jot things down, but don't feel the need to write all those down. Let me read through these. First one, Lydia. God saves the comfortable from their comforts and uses them to comfort others. Can you see that with Lydia? She had it made. I've got to be honest. I think that after this, would her becoming a Christian made her life easier or more difficult? In a very real sense, probably more difficult. Opening up her home to these Christians who are eventually going to be persecuted, even in this story, thrown into prison. Would that have put her on the in with the, the powerful of the, her society, of her city, or on the outs? On the outs. God, I believe, many times saves the comfortable from their comforts. Sometimes one of the most difficult things to save us from. And uses them comfort others. God saves the oppressed. Do you thank God that he does that? Many of you know this firsthand. Many of you have lived a life that's been oppressed. God saves the oppressed from their oppressions and uses them to inspire others. Some of our favorite testimonies are those that were like, I have been, I was in this horrible situation. God brought me out. 
God saves the oppressed and uses those people to inspire others. God saves the apathetic from their apathy, like this Philippian jailer going through life, punching the clock, doing what you need to do, planning your next vacation, got to do the next thing. God saves the apathetic from their apathy and uses them to bring joy. When I read this story, one of my favorite parts is the Philippian jailer. Thinking of him washing those wounds afterward, and it says that he rejoiced with his whole family. Finally, God saves, and this is referring, I think, to Luke. God saves the bystanders from standing by and uses them to stand front and center for the gospel. Luke, just doing his rounds, I believe, as the physician of the area, God pulled him out of just being a bystander to life, and eventually Luke is front and center proclaiming the gospel. I share these things with you because I believe that each and every one of you can relate to one aspect or another, or maybe all of them. And so I want to end today by saying, you know what, whatever your situation, maybe you're, maybe you're comfortable. I want to say God wants to rescue you from that. You may be thinking to yourself, I don't want to be rescued from that. That's the great and amazing thing about the rescue itself is that God works in your heart to think, I don't want to just be comfortable. I want to know what God has for me. Some of you in this room are oppressed. There's things hounding you daily, weekly, sometimes hourly. The slave girl is a good example for you to know God can save you from that. With a word, God can rescue you. God saves the apathetic. Maybe that's where you're at. Just going through life. Not too much you're passionate about. God can save you from that and fill you with joy that you didn't even know was possible. Finally, God can save you if you're just a bystander. God loves to use bystanders to do the biggest things. Maybe that's what you've been for most of your life a bystander, God can save you from that. The gospel is powerful. And God can use each and every one of you. When I look at this church, I honestly, genuinely believe that. I look out at every single one of you from all different walks of life, kind of like this Philippian church, all different walks of life, different backgrounds, different situations that you're currently in, different situations you've been in in the past, I look out at you and I, I, I read the story of this Philippian church and I think to myself, God has not changed. And there's not a person in this room that I don't believe that God could use in an amazing way to accomplish the work of his gospel. Every single one of you, without a doubt. So I share this story with you so that you'll hear it and you'll think to yourself as you walk out of this room, you head home, in your car on the way, maybe while you're eating lunch today, you might go, man, God uses just regular people. These people, their story is recorded. 2,000 years later, we know who they are. Is it because they were amazing? No. It's because God is amazing. And God can do the same thing in you and with you and in your life. And use you for the work of the gospel, sharing it to others. There's probably ways that God may use some of you in ways I've never even considered possible that God may 
be working and planning and bringing you right into those things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do thank you again for the story. No, Lord, this is the second time we've gone through this. And again, I just marvel at your gracious hand in bringing these odd group of people together to start this church. God, I thank you for that as well with this church, for bringing this odd group of people together to start this church. God, I pray that you would just bless us, open our eyes, help us to see what you may have for us. God, I pray that your powerful hand would be in our lives. Lord, I pray for those in this room that are just going through in their comforts of life. God, I pray that you'd free them of that. Lord, if need be, make them uncomfortable, but make them uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel. God, I pray that you'd be with those in this room that might be oppressed by the things of this world, possibly even spiritual powers that are oppressing them and dragging them down. God, I pray that by the word of your power, you would free them maybe in this exact moment. Free them of those things. In the name of Jesus, I ask this. God, I pray that you'd be with those that are apathetic. They're not even sure why they're here today. Lord, maybe in hearing this, they got a glimpse that God wants to rescue them from their apathy and bring them into a life full of joy for work in the gospel. God, I pray that you'd be with those who are bystanders. God, I pray that you'd bring us, each and every one of us, from standing on the wayside right into the midst of your gospel work, whatever that is. Lord, I leave the, the, the actual plan to you. Lord, you're, you're the head of this church. God, you are building this church, not us. Lord, I pray that you'd use each and every one of us in your purposes in this town, in this city, this county. God, I pray that you'd use us. And God, I pray that there would not be a person who walks out of this room today thinking to themselves that God doesn't have something for them because it's just not true. God has something for each and every one of all of us in this room. And we learn this by looking at how you built your church 2,000 years ago in this little city called Philippi. Lord, we learn from it. We're encouraged by it. Lord, with hope, we say, God, build this church as well. Bring to it whom you want. Orchestrate it the exact way that you'd like. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed.